Hello and welcome to Adrian Goldberg's talk show, the most eclectic podcast in the world. Politics, entertainment, sport, investigations, whatever takes my fancy really. This time a moving and very topical short film called Three Sackfuls of Hats, featuring some top UK acting talent, the likes of Alison Steadman and Warren Brown. And made in 2018, but only just released now online in November 2020 to mark Alcohol Awareness Week. It delves into the world of booze-infused mental illness. And it's a very still film. It's a film that will draw you in and have you reflecting on anger, on some of your moods perhaps, and moving on in life as well, all of which is encompassed in a relatively short span of time. I want to talk about it now with the director, Debbie Anzalone. I hope I've pronounced that right, Debbie. It's actually Debbie Anzalone. Debbie Anzalone, giving it the full Italian pronunciation there then. <laughs> and uh, written by BAFTA award-winning writer, Jeff Thompson as well. Hi, Jeff. You're right. Hi, Adrian. Uh, Jeff, I, I want to talk to you first about this because this has partly grown from your own personal experience a little bit, hasn't it? Yeah, it has, yeah. Yeah, my brother died uh, 20 years ago from alcohol and my sister died this year uh, from the same disease. So it's very close to home. The, this, this film is actually written about the last kind of 48 hours of my brother's life. And I wrote it because I wanted to explore. I was really, I was dissonant actually because my dad was so angry and but couldn't articulate it and would turn up to the hospital drunk. And my mum was more afraid of the shame than she was of an assassin's bullet and I just didn't I just was so angry at that I just didn't understand it and I was also angry at my brother because he's got four young kids but my brother was my hero I didn't want to be angry at him I didn't want to admit any of these emotions so I wrote the film in order to try and understand it and in writing the films the characters articulated things to me that they couldn't have articulated in the hideous scene around the deathbed of a, of a dying sibling or the, of a dying son they just didn't have the articulation or the education or the understanding so my brother showed me that he'd fallen into addiction because he'd you know he'd had a very bad divorce um he aspired to be a writer and got knocked down and knocked down and knocked down and he'd been taught or well, conditioned like we all had from kids to turn to the drink when things didn't go right the drink would prop you up of course, when things continue to fall and he's seen them as uh, failures, he turned to the drink more and more. And then eventually when his marriage died and he really struggled to get to see his kids, he went to the drink full time. Till in the end, he was sat in the hallway of a tiny flat in Belgreen, Coventry, and drank strong Russian whiskey or watered down wine and just drank himself to death, but none of us actually ever acknowledged that he actually really had a problem. None of us wanted to look at the fact that, you know, he was an alcoholic. So I wanted to explore all that. And I realised from looking at it that my dad didn't know how to cope with that, having a drink, because that's how he'd been brought up. He never would have thought that having a drink was wrong. He would never would, would have thought that turning up at the hospital with a drink when your son is dying from alcohol was wrong. He wouldn't have known that. That's what it showed me. My, my dad... I didn't have the ability to articulate his pain. He was a beautiful dad. He was a gentleman, but he just did not have the articulation. And the only time he became a bit more loquacious was when he'd had a drink. My mum was brought up as an Irish Catholic, and she was terrified of shame. 
She was terrified of shame coming to the door. What I realised when I spoke to these characters in their kind of semi-fictionalised form is that they spoke back to me. My mum said to me, you're the one that's ashamed. You're the one that's angry. And I said, why am I ashamed? What have I got to be ashamed of? She said, you're ashamed of us. And I was. I was so shocked. I was so shocked that I was ashamed of my dad turning up drunk and making a fuss. I was ashamed of my mum squirming in her skin. When I said, look, when she said that writing about it was bringing the dirty washing out in public, I said, it's not dirty washing, it's my brother. I'm not ashamed of my brother. But I was ashamed of their reaction. I was ashamed of their fear. So I recognised that the film wasn't really about them because I I projected it all onto them. The film was really about me hating the fact that I was so ashamed, that I was so dissonant, that I couldn't articulate what I wanted to say. I couldn't say to my brother, what's wrong with you? I didn't understand that I was no longer talking to my brother. I was talking to a disease. When my sister died this year, I was able to sit with her every day before she died and communicate soul to soul on a level of love because there was no judgment in me. There was no anger. There was no dissonance. I completely understood that the addiction had taken her over um, and I could penetrate the addiction and talk directly to her. And she could open up to me because she knew I didn't judge her. It didn't mean I wasn't, you know, I was deeply sad. Even when my mum rang me and said, you know, she's took a turn for the worse, I, I can remember just not being able to speak, just breaking down, not being able to speak. I was wounded, as we all were, but I didn't judge her. I made the mistake of judging my brother. I made the mistake of judging my mum. I made the mistake of judging my dad, and they deserve better. This time around, unfortunately, when my sister died, none of that happened, and I was able to talk to my mum and help my mum and remind my mum of what she told me when my brother was dying. These aren't the choices we would have made for your brother, but they're the choices he made for himself. We must honour that. As though, although these, these choices are killing him, we must honour the choices he's made. His, his life, his life is not our life. And when we held the wake in the Worker Men's Club, I was so angry. I was so angry. I was, there's no way aren't you going to get me into a Worker Men's Club to celebrate my brother's life with another drink. And she said, but she said, but these were his friends. She said, when he was dying, it wasn't your name he was calling out. It wasn't my name he was calling out. It wasn't the name of his wife or his children. He was calling out the name of his drinking partner, Billy. She said, that's not what we would have wanted, but he loved these people. He loved them. So we must honour that. So when my sister was dying and, and it was so deeply painful, so much sorrow, so much suffering. I reminded my mum of, of what she taught me because she's very wise about when my brother died. And together we were able to get through it a lot easier. Even though we couldn't reverse my sister's addiction, she'd been wrestling with it for 20 years. Even though we couldn't reverse it, we, we could uh, go and sit around the hospital bed and give her the only thing we could give her, which was love. And we give her that. We give her everything we have. Wow, that's a very raw and powerful account, Jeff, of the alcoholism within your own family. And Debbie, when you come to portray that in film, you're obviously helped by having a a fantastic cast. But what strikes me about the film is that raw emotion is there. You do capture that in a, and yet there is a kind of melancholy beauty about it as well. Yeah, I mean, when I 
when I read um, the, the script, um, which was originally for a play, and then Jeff and I edited it together, I really felt the dialogue was just so powerful. And I knew that I wanted to make the film and I wanted it to feel very internal. I wanted it to really come from, I really wanted us to feel what Mick was carrying, the main character, Warren Brown. I really wanted to give space and really carve out that internal world of the internal conflict of what he was going through. So yeah, the the script was incredibly strong and what the actors brought to it and the kind of the heartbeat that they brought to it and the chemistry, the family that they formed in such a short space of time. It was a really strong experience and they all wanted to give it their absolute best because I think they were all there. We were all there because we believed in the story and we believed in these relationships and we believed in what was going on with this family. Um, So we wanted to really bring that alive. And those actors were just amazing. And, you know, it's a very short shoot for a short film and there's always so much to cover. But what, what we managed to do was to really carve out that internal space within Mick's character, which for me was so important. You know, when I read the script, I really wanted us to have time to actually absorb what was going on through his experience. Yeah, you talk about the script and obviously there is powerful language in there, but actually it's not a film that is chock full of dialogue, is it? There is actually a lot of space, a lot of image relative to the amount of words. Yeah, and that also came through in in the editing. You know, there were some things that kind of naturally fell away because in a way that they they were said without words, the, you know, dialogue that stayed there because it had to stay there because it, you know, it was exactly what was meant to be there. Um, so some of the lines did fall away and what needed to stay stayed and then gave us the space to kind of really work those scenes and create that stillness. Jeff, you then, in this semi-fictionalised account of your own life, you presumably are then Mick, yeah. the family member who's done well for himself. I know Mick in the film has kind of moved away and you're still very close to your Coventry roots, I know. But is that you, the, the kid who kind of did well for himself and yeah. kind of looks looks at his family with a, a kind of critical eye from the outside? It's one of those things, you know, that lovely line um, from Oasis, I took a walk with my fame down memory lane, but I never could find my way back. I love that idea that, you, you know, that you only have to have a, a degree of success and step outside of the boundaries of your uh, upbringing and you suddenly become alien, that you become alien to the people that you grew up with and, and they become alien to you because you talk a different language. You're, you, have a, you have a clearer view of, of potential and what's possible. You've broken some of the mores, you've challenged some of the conditions or the conditioning. So you come back, of course, you love people, you do, but you, you're not the same person. I can't sit and drink, have a drink with my old friends anymore. I haven't drank for 20 years. You know, I can't have conversations. I can't sit and gossip. It's just not in my vernacular anymore. I just can't have the conversations I had 20 years ago. It, it wouldn't be good for them and it wouldn't be good for me, but I still love them. I still take my mum shopping every Thursday and, and, you know, I love her, ba- I love her very bones. 
but you do change and you do expand and you're aware that you're living in a reality, not only that they can't access at the moment, they could if they wanted to, but they don't even understand. You know, I remember, um, I think Michael Caine said to his mom, his mom said to him once, uh, what did you earn on your last film? And he said, a million pounds, mom. And she said, is that a lot of money? (laughs) She had no conception at all. You know, people have no idea, like, for instance, when you bring a film together, uh, the pain and the trauma and the conflict that you have to do in that process of individuation, of bringing up all of those dead bodies from under the patio and processing them and letting them live in, in a piece of art. So you're cleaning, really, in, in effect, for your brother who couldn't do it for himself. You're cleaning psychologically for your parents who couldn't articulate it themselves. You're cleaning for your friends who are still stuck in those addictions. I've lost lots of friends to alcohol. You're hopefully, in in bearing yourself naked metaphorically, you're encouraging people out there who are struggling to articulate their own trauma or their own crisis. You're, You're encouraging them to bear themselves naked so that they can clean. So rather than them being as sick as their secrets, as they say in AA, they're able to individuate them and bring them into light. And if I can give all of that um, crisis a voice, especially a beautiful voice like this with such a beautiful director and such beautiful actors, then I'm going to give it life and it's going to go out there. What me and Debbie always said, if one person watches this film and it takes them onto a programme or it makes them think about a programme or it makes them think about not just about themselves, the drinkers, but the others that the drinkers leave behind, who have to pick up the debris because they do you know the 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 debris we have to pick up from the death of my brother from the death of my sister and i'll do it willingly because i love them that's not the issue it's not a complaint it's just saying that these these things don't happen in a vacuum my brother's my idol he was a great writer he was an artist he was going to do stuff you know he was going to change the world my brother and in the end he allowed fear to shrink his reality to a hallway in a in a grotty flat in a grotty corner of Coventry, you know, in a really a really dank place, and he was afraid to leave that stall, he, even to go to bed. He slept in a tent in the hall. My my brothers, this this guy that was going to change the world and they'd travel, he allowed fear to shrink his world to a stall, and then eventually to a hospital bed where you know where he, even his body became too frightening a kingdom to hold his spirit and I I was with him I watched him leave his body and I demanded when he went I demanded to know what what are you teaching what are you showing me and he was teaching me not to listen to catabolic fear not to listen to those uh, negative voices the harbingers of doom he was saying you've got to embrace and intercourse with your fear and dissolve it and churn it up and make it part of the creative process, use it as oil for the lamp. In all the writing I've done about my brother, and I've written a lot about him because I wanted to understand him and I wanted to pull these secrets out. It all came back to the one thing, fear. My brother drank because he was afraid. My dad drank because he was afraid. My mum crawled in her skin because she was afraid. My sister died of alcohol because she was afraid. But we're all afraid. But the difference with me is that I'm, I'm constantly leaning into those sharp edges. With the films I do, I want them to be didactic. 
I want them not just to be an intercessionary. I want them to act as an intercession in somebody's life, but also have an element of, you know, this is what you can do to understand it. There, there are processes, that even if it's just that you sit around and talk, like Mick and the mum sit and talk in the car at the end. That's very didactic. It's saying, speak how you're feeling, talk about it, bounce it back and forward and process it. So we want the films to move people, hopefully act as an intercession, hopefully offer some level of humanisation. Everybody steps over winos in the street, forgetting that they're somebody's son, somebody's daughter, somebody's husband, somebody's wife, somebody's brother, somebody's sister. These are people. And if we dare to stop and look at them and look into, into their eyes, you see all those people there. So it's saying we've got to humanise this and look at it and also look at our own habits. Most people will struggle. Jeff, you said that you hadn't... Sorry, Jeff, to interrupt. That's okay. Jeff, you said that you haven't drunk for 20 years. Was that because you had been yeah. through this as well? No, I, um, I would say I had an addiction, definitely, because, you know, if you'd said to me, I would have told you I could control my drink, but if you said to me, don't drink for the next two weeks while you're on holiday, I would have been horrified. I'd have thought, well, I'm, I've earned a drink. As my dad always told me, I've earned a drink. I've worked for a drink. So it was only when I, when I started going into the Budo end of my martial arts training which is the esoteric armor of martial arts. I stopped drinking as an exercise in cerebral strength. I wanted to see whether I could do it. I wanted to see whether I could challenge that because none of my friends were able to do it. And I thought I wanted to try and do something that other people hadn't really looked at because drink isn't only acceptable in society, drink is expectable. People are expected to drink. They can joke. You could even have the prime minister coming on and saying, well, yeah, I'm a bit groggy. Had too many sherbets last night, and everybody starts laughing. And it's so accepted. It's so it's so, so conditioned into us. So it, it just you know, a lot of my friends are addicted and don't know they're addicted and pretend they're not addicted, but they can't not drink. They can't not have a drink. So I gave it up as a cerebral exercise, um, and I just never went back to it. But I, of course, I was traumatized by my brother's death as well. So that that didn't help. And that was part of the catalyst. But um, I hadn't become an alcoholic, but I can't say as I wasn't addicted because I couldn't not have a drink. It was only when I got a clearer view of things, a wider perspective that I was able to go, everybody's doing this. Everybody's doing this and nobody's questioning it. Nobody's questioning what is enough. The moderate drinkers, none of them were moderate that I knew. So you go and have a drink with somebody and after the first pint you were talking to a complete stranger. Nobody was talking about what happened when you had a drink and how, the, how we opened the doorway and, and all sorts of other uh, terrible things came in. So I wanted to just explore it, not from a sense of judgment, just from a place of don't really know why I do this. I only know that it's part of my culture, part of my conditioning, and I want to challenge it. When I gave up alcohol, I wiped out 95% of my um, social circle. <laughs> I think many people would recognise that. Debbie, as a director, you seem to be drawn <laughs> to these kind of gritty subjects, don't you? I know you've made public information films for Samaritans. You made a, a film called It Doesn't Have to Happen, which is a kind of docudrama about knife crime. There's something about these hard subjects that appeals to you. Yeah, definitely. Um, it kind of all started with so I come from a documentary background. So it all started with making, I remember making a series of documentaries on young musicians and one of them was a rapper. And he had the most 
it wasn't just his story, it was the way that he told his story, also what he said, but like he was just so compelling to listen to. And from that point, I started making films about other people who had very interesting stories, who'd been through something, who'd pivoted something, people who had gone through like really intense moments in their life, really intense situations in their life. And then through that work, I then got commissioned to go and do the anti-knife crime campaign. And that's where I went into prisons. I interviewed young men in there. And with those interviews, we then used those testimonies verbatim and worked with actors because we were not allowed to show the real the real um, people, the real contributors. So what I'm really drawn to is authenticity, something that just feels really, really important. And the way in which whoever that is, is telling their story, and whether it's an actor or whether it's a, a, a contributor in a documentary, is that it just feels there's an urgency about it. And it feels like when I, the documentary maker or filmmaker, are listening to it, I know that this needs to be heard. And, and I suppose that's my antenna when drawing in projects and when working on whether it's social issue campaigns or fiction work, like working with Jeff on Three Sacks Full of Hats and other projects that I've done, that's been kind of what has aligned all of them. The fact that they've, they've just got a lot of integrity and there's an authenticity that really draws me in. And I feel that it's a story that needs to be told. And I feel that it's a story that actually affects so many people. I just really believe in the power of storytelling, you know, and I think us as human beings listening to these stories and watching these films or listening to stories, audio or film or documentary, it really helps to build deeper understanding of what it is to be a human from a different position, you know, from a different, from a different perspective, from a different um, understanding people from all different walks of life. Yeah. So Debbie, I know it was kind of released on the festival circuit around 2018, but if, if it's now available online though, so anybody can watch it. Where, where can people see it? Yeah, people can watch it on Omeletto. It's a platform for award-winning short films, and that's O-M-E-L-E-T-O. Or if you go onto YouTube, they have a channel there on called Omeletto, so you can watch Three Sacks Full of Hats on YouTube or directly on Omeletto. Okay, and well worth doing. Really appreciate your time. Uh, Debbie Anzalone, thank you very much indeed. Jeff Thompson, thank you as well.